Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. It's going to be a good one. I know it. I'm here with Paul Green Jr. Uh, from Morningstar. Uh, in fact, you're from the Self-Managing Institute there. Uh, we're going to learn a lot about Morningstar. I hope this is going to inspire a lot of listening uh, listeners out there into uh, how we think, can do things differently in the workplace. So, Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks, Richard. I'm excited to be here. Appreciate you having me. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure. So let's uh, get to know a little bit about you before we dive in. Uh, yeah, what's your backstory and, and how did you uh, come to be in the role you've got now? Yeah, great question. So um, there's a sort of a long version and a short version of this story. Um, I uh, originally joined Morningstar when I was 19 years old, 18 years old, just uh, just started college. and. Uh, Crazily enough, I started as a as a seasonal person. So, for those of you who aren't familiar with Morningstar, it's a uh, food processing integrated agribusiness uh, company. So, they process tomato products, harvest tomato products, farm tomato products, do a lot of distribution. And uh, I started working as a factory worker when I was eighteen years old. And uh, over a number of years, I've had sort of a, a really unique career trajectory. You you mentioned that I had this. Uh, most recently uh, run as part of the Self-Management Institute, which is sort of a research arm um, and now have, you know, devoted a significant portion of my time to working as a researcher. I'm a faculty member at the University of Texas, in, in addition to my work uh, in conjunction with Morningstar. So I've navigated from being a factory worker at 18 years old to being a person who thinks about studies, how to build organizations that work more effectively, organizations like Morningstar, a whole bunch of stops in between that sort of take a really twisty, turny uh, path. Right. And when you're that 18 year old kid, you know, get, get joining the production line, presumably. Yeah. yeah. How, because from my understanding of Morningstar stories, it's been this way from the inception. Yeah. So, is that right? It is right. And it is. So, so this is how Morningstar started. And when I came on board at Morningstar, I'll be honest with you. Um, I didn't really know much about Morningstar. I was just, I was a college kid I was engaged to be married and I wanted to make as much money as I could, uh, so that, so that I could afford to get married and, um, and work my way through college. And this place was just known as a really great place to work. And so I applied and I was just overjoyed to, to get the role there. And then you join up, as the seasonal person, you know, ostensibly coming to work on the factory floor, doing some routine mundane job. And, you know, a significant portion of what I was doing was routine and mundane, but it wasn't at all what I expected from an organizational standpoint. In fact, it was dramatically different at, at a, in an overarching way from the way we might think factories are, are, are operated. Uh, so yeah, it was a startling experience. Now, you know, I was 18 years old. I'd worked on and off during high school, but this is really my first career type job. So I think I was maybe not quite as, uh, you know, set in my thinking about how organizations should operate. And for me, it wasn't so much like, oh, this is a wonderful place to be. And it was more, hey, I have the opportunity to do some really interesting things here. I'm going to take advantage of that. Right. But, but what was that first day like? Like, because if there's no bosses, there's no one telling you, you know, hey, Paul, go fill up that, that box over there. Like, how, how, does it, how are your first interactions when you turn up? 
Yeah, totally. So, I mean, I guess it's probably worth noting that one of the crazy things about Morningstar is, and, and this may be the thing they're most known known for, and for folks who aren't familiar with the company, um, it is a completely non-hierarchical organization. There's no differential levels of hierarchy. There are no people who are formally assigned the role of boss. There's no, I mean, you can go all the way to the crazy end of the spectrum, and there are no formal assigned budgetary authorities, any authority, anybody who comes to the organization has the right to acquire resources and spend money and and, and so it's this place where you come in, and as you said, there's there's no technical boss. Although there is, there are people who who say, "Hey, we'd like you to come be a part of the company." Um, but frankly, a lot of that wasn't really visible, like on day one. On day one, it was very much, "Hey, welcome aboard." There's all this stuff we need to do. There's big physical pieces of equipment that we have to turn on, and we have to make sure that they run. And there's all kinds of tomato products coming in that we have to make sure we do good stuff with it, and that it's high quality. And so from that perspective, it was very much like any other factory. I think the part that was very different was the way your your job is presented to you. I was in a, in a sort of weird, squishy way. I was kind of given a mission, like your mission, here's your mission, as opposed to here's your job responsibility. And that sounds nuanced and a little fluffy. And I think there's lots of talk about things like mission and purpose. And it didn't come across as, as fluffy or squishy at all to me. It was it was really about helping me to understand this specific thing that I was going to spend most of my time doing. And just to be clear, I was a factory worker. In fact, like day one, what I spent most of my time doing was, you know, this is the middle, this is the California that doesn't get taken into the movies very often. So it's not like Silicon Valley or San Francisco or LA. There's no beaches. It's the middle of farm country, California. It's hot and almost desert-like and, you know, 105 degrees Fahrenheit outside. I've got to go out to this factory and I've got to take a sample from one of these pieces of equipment. There's 30 or 40 of them out there. I've got to take a sample, run it back in, run one simple basic test on it, store the value of that test in an Excel spreadsheet, and then go back out and do the same thing over and over again. So I'm a college kid and and I get it. I understand like what my task is, but I also understand what my purpose is. I know what it is, why this matters, who it matters to, what the purpose of this thing is. And I also recognize that it wasn't this big overblown thing, but when I come aboard, I'm told that you have the freedom and flexibility to do what you need to do in order to accomplish that mission. There's there's nobody who's, who's, uh, whose permission you have to get to accomplish your mission. As long as you're responsible in the enactment of your mission, do whatever you need to do in order to, to achieve it. And, and for me, I think it was merely that I got bored. I was going crazy. Like how many, imagine Richard, that you, that's your job. And like, how many times are you doing that before? Like, I'm gonna go nuts. That there has to be something more meaningful and deeper than, than this. And, and, and for me, that was the, the purpose. The purpose kind of gave me the path or ability to, to think about, okay, what is it we're trying to achieve here? And how can I take this very routine task and turn it into something that's stimulating for me? And what we're really trying to do, I mean, this is a manufacturing facility. And what we're really trying to do is create, develop enough data points so we could create an operating algorithm for how to operate these pieces of equipment to maximize efficiency and minimize wear. That was the purpose. That was the mission that I was handed. I kind of understood purpose. And I'm a natural uh, researcher, like into instinctively, my natural approach is like, how can we turn this into a research project? So I went and I talked to the folks in the control room who were responsible for just managing those pieces of equipment moment to moment, day to day. I said, hey, I'd like to treat this as an experiment. I want to start randomly manipulating um, variables on one of these pieces of equipment at a time. It's relatively low risk. Worst case scenario, one of them gets a little wonky, but we'll fix it immediately. Just want to start randomly manipulating these things so we can see what happens. So I did that and I spent an entire summer, three months doing that and developing a 
pretty large data set. And then ultimately I wrote a pretty lengthy report about what I found. And, and I think it's important to note that at some level, all of those were very aligned with the task that I was doing, but it took the task I was doing and changed how I approached that task and also changed the nature of my motivation vis-a-vis that task. And also gave me the permission to expand it to become a research project, which was very much aligned with what I was interested in. And the story from there sort of like veers off. I gave this report to a handful of folks in the company who I thought would be interested in it. They loved it. They asked me if I wanted to come <clears throat> present to a group of uh, employees and, and pr- prospective customers. And they did. And that navigate that sort of transition into me working on another project that was a similar sort of project. And then you kind of fast forward. But the point I'm making here is that the tasks are tasks that have to be done and people do the tasks just like they would in any other environment. But there's this nuanced context in which you're doing the tasks that change it entirely how you approach it. And I think that's an artifact of this organization that, that Morningstar has tried to build. Right. And so the, the mission then, so somebody gave you a task, which was like test, test these tomatoes. Exactly. But, but, but that's, so there is some level of instruction, right? You, you didn't just have to kind of wander around and keep asking no. people until you no. found something useful to do. There is, that Correct. exists. So, so it's not like this environment. I think this is one of those things that people kind of have a hard time situating. Um, I mean, it's a manufacturing facility with these structural interdependencies, right? Like some tomatoes come into the front door and they go out the back door as processed food products that people eat. Just without knowing anything about the tomato processing business, you got to. I'm sure you that there are all these structural interdependencies. Like things have to work really, really well yeah. together. They have to click. One thing has to go to the next thing, and it has to go to the next thing, and it has to be calibrated, and people have to be coordinated. So all of the really important things that have to happen in any organization of this type have to happen. And so it's not this environment where you just drop a bunch of people in and we close our eyes and cross our fingers and hope that everyone magically sort of like aligns on the stock. And in a way, actually, I think maybe it's made easier by the fact that there is this physical facility with physical things that have to happen. And it becomes very clear and vivid, like where the needs are. But but it's still when you walk in the door, there's like we're looking for somebody to do this. There's some stuff that needs to be done. We're looking for somebody to do that. Now, we just want you to recognize that. We're not hiring you specifically only to do these tasks, but we see you as a person who could do these, these tasks really well. But let's take a step back and recognize the tasks are in service of a broader mission. So what we're really asking you to do is take on this mission, which probably involves these tasks, but may involve a lot of other stuff. Does that make sense? Right. And, so, and the mission isn't like the high-level mission of the whole company. It's, it's a specific mission in that factory associated with your role. Is that right? Yeah. So, so, I mean, obviously the organization has a mission. Yeah. Um, and, and if you take that mission and you think about it at a, at a big overarching level, um, anything that anybody does within the organization needs, and this isn't for any organization, this is, this is not a Morningstar specific thing, but you think about whatever purpose or mission an organization has, anybody who joins up with that organization should, is ostensibly doing something in support of that mission. Um, but their their part of that is generally on a day to day basis from an activity level, generally much smaller. So in Morningstar, what we do is we have this overarching organizational mission, and we have a personal commercial mission. And this is your mission as it relates to the overarching organization's mission. Um, and, and the way we think about missions is that first of all, all of the missions are if you sort of sum them all up, 
they should align with the org. They, they should sort of encompass the organization's mission. But also, like your mission is about illustrating or illuminating the dependencies within the organization. So anything worth doing, any human activity worth doing in a commercial setting is only worth doing because somebody benefits from it. Mm-hmm. As human beings in commercial, engaged in commercial activity, what we're really doing is we're doing things to the benefit of other people. And so most of these personal missions are really about illuminating who benefits from what you do. Why does it matter? To whom does it matter? What is the nature of it mattering? Uh, and so I think what the mission with the individual personal commercial mission does is, first of all, connects you to the overall purpose of the organization, but also starts to build the, the mesh of interdependencies between people that exist in any sort of commercial environment. Right. And so, and so I'm interested in, so what was your mission as that 18 year old coming into the man? I was, somebody asked me that the other day and I, I could tell you my mission now, but I cannot remember what my mission is. It was something about, uh, it's sort of technical. It was something about ensuring that the juice from the tomato preparation area is high quality, efficient, efficiently produced, the lowest cost possible or something weird. Okay. I don't know. It was, it was something weird like that, very technical sounding. Right. Uh, but so I, you like I, the juice wizard? Yeah, kind of. Although, uh, to be honest with you, there were people that were much more wizardly on the juice side of things than I was. Got it. Okay. So that's right. So, so that's really the only thing you're given then. So you're not given a boss, you're not given a structure, you're not given a rule yeah. book. You're given yeah. this, let's call it the juice mission. Yeah. Um, and that just com- that comes from somebody else in the organization, but who is not formally your boss. Yeah. Um, and uh, technically, I mean, I think the way the way we've always tried to operate at Morningstar, and there's lots of variants here. Uh, the way we've always tried to operate at Morningstar is be very cautious about even people feeling like they're being assigned even a mission. Uh, what we're really always trying to do is get people to opt in or commit to a mission. And okay. and and. And I think my case is a little, maybe a little different, and and maybe my case is maybe a little closer to what the average seasonal call. Like I joined as a seasonal person, like I was a I was a temporary employee there for three or four months or something like that. And I think my experience was maybe a little closer to what that average person who comes in with that sort of role has. But the push, the drive, has always been in Morningstar to advertise opportunities for people to take on a mission. And we talk about some of the activities that that mission might entail, but what we're really asking people to do is, hey, join up with us and commit to this mission or a mission like this. You, you know, you can craft your own mission if that works for all of us, fine. But ultimately, I, I actually, I mean, this comes from a lot of my research and I think it's built in into how Morningstar does things. I think there's something really powerful to people determining their own, own course of action. And that may seem mm. obvious, like intuitively, that seems obvious to us. Like imagine, the various aspects of your life always being dictated by some other third party saying, this is what you must do. This is how you have to do it. Um, and, and most of us would revolt if that was the way the mo- the majority of our out of work life was, was lived. Like if you're, when you go home or you go to the grocery store, or you go on vacation or all the things you do outside of work, if all those things were, were sort of, a matter of policy that was imposed on you by some other third party, it wouldn't take very long where you'd say, okay, we're not doing this. This needs to change. This is not the sort of society or environment I want to live in. And we actually think there's some real benefits that come from from that self-determination, opting in, making your own decisions about how to do things. And so we always try to be very careful about even assigning missions to people. Right. So there are, yeah, so there's some cases 
where that's necessary, but uh, you you yeah. try as much as possible to have it be an opt in. Here's a mission Absolutely. should you want to take it. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. It sounds a little like a uh like a 007 movie or something like that. Yeah, well it sounds exciting, doesn't it? I mean, I love that yeah. idea. No, uh, I'm not sure it's that exciting from like a like on a day-to-day basis, but I think at a deep <laughs> level it's really a really an important thing that I think most business leaders don't capture. Right. Yeah. Um we tend to think about that as being something you you give like a top leader, right? This is your mission, you know, to turn around this company. But the idea yeah. that everybody in an organization uh, is given a mission like that, that that that's what sounds different to me. And for what it's worth, I mean, one of the reasons we, we tend to reserve that for top leaders is that they feel if that term itself feels very big and lofty and inspirational. I don't actually think most of the missions at Morningstar are all that lofty or inspirational. I mean, many of them are very kind of narrow and and don't seem all that substantive. But that's to me, that's not really the purpose. The purpose isn't to inspire this lofty feeling like I'm doing something that's really, really important. In fact, at some level, that feels sort of strange. All I was doing was taking samples of juice from, from machines and testing them. And in the big scheme of things, it's hard to make a credible case that that is a really big, monumental, critically important thing. It turns out I don't think that matters as much to people as we imagine it does. I think what matters more is people feeling like I'm doing some stuff and there are some people who are impacted by what I'm doing. And maybe the impact is really big or maybe the impact is really small. In fact, we have research to support this. At some level, a more direct but inconsequential impact is way more motivational than this really big, lofty, but abstract and distant impact. So the purpose of the mission isn't to inspire you by making what you're doing feel or sound bigger than it is. It's merely about connecting you to somebody who benefits from what you do. Right. Right. And yeah, what I'm is making it concrete that what I'm doing is valuable and I can see impact it's having on other people, not necessarily society or the world. It's just exactly I can can see a through line to how I'm making a difference. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Got it. So, so you you take on this mission. You're testing the juice. You do, you're doing your seasonal work, and then and then what? It ends, and you and you go back to, to college. So, <laughs> great question. So, um, you know, I'd already made the determination that I was going to be, uh, you know, I was going to work my way through college because I was engaged and married, and that was my plan. I actually had uh, got a job at a bank to work at okay. a bank, and. Uh, I don't know. I was, it was my last week there that I was scheduled to be there. And I got this random call. Uh, and it turns out it was from Chris Roofer, who up to that point, I'd never met. Chris Roofer, for those of you who aren't familiar with the company, uh, is the founder of the company, is the owner of the company. And um, a person who's very involved in the company from like an a engineering standpoint. And he's sort of a natural, he's trained as an engineer, natural born engineer. He loves factories, loves sort of building and developing factories. And I get this random call one day. Um, I'm actually working in the factory and somebody comes on the intercom and says, Paul, uh, you've you got a call. And so I go and I pick it up and the person says, hi, Paul, this is Chris. And I, again, I've never met the guy. I've seen him around. I've heard about him. And if everyone knows who he is, uh, this is Chris. And uh, he said, yeah, I saw you wrote this report. Um, somehow it made it to my desk. And I found it very interesting. We had like a 20 minute conversation about this report. And his the nature of the conversation was that this is really interesting. It's informative. It's helped shape how I think about how our factory should be designed. Um, in passing, he mentioned we have this thing coming up. We'd love you to talk about what you learned. And then he said, "What other things do you think you would like or could could you do here?" 
And I mean, how's an 18 year old supposed to answer that question? Honestly, I have no idea. I came in and I had some fun doing something and people left me alone and I was able to do it. And I got to write and I love writing and I got to tickle the research. But past that, I don't know. And so I kind of stumbled around. I don't know the answer to that question. And we spent like three or four minutes sort of brainstorming. And the nature of the brainstorming was like him trying to get a sense of what was interesting to me. And that struck me as really intriguing. At the time, you know, I've always thought about people coming to work for an organization as organization has this thing that they need done. And they're looking for the person that fits perfectly into that box, right? Like, here's this box, this is stuff. And we need to find a person that's the best fit for that little box. And what he was doing is asking if I wanted to come on board in a more permanent way. But his way of doing it is like, what are you interested in? And what have you seen out here that you could do that would be of value? And that struck me as a profoundly different way to approach bringing people on board. In fact, it was one of the things about the uh, conversation that intrigued me. Now, it turns out that's a big part of how Morningstar does things. Um, and and if you, many people who come on board, that's the nature of their coming aboard. It's a little bit of that, hey, we've got some stuff that needs to be done and we've got this mission. And we think that you might be a good fit, but we're not insistent on you like fitting in this box. What we want to know is, based on the, the idea that there's some initial sense of overlap, what do you see out here that you think could be done? And how could we build a role that makes sense for you? How can we come up with a mission that makes sense for you? But ultimately, uh, I expressed some of my interest. I talked about what I was going to school for. Um, he told me to go out and talk to other people in the enterprise and see if I could put together a role, a mission that made sense. And if I could, then I should work a deal and come on board. That's a really weird conversation to have with an owner of a firm. Like, go yeah. talk to people and see if you can build a role that makes sense for you. And if so, make a deal with them. And that's what I did. And, and I stuck around there for a number of years. And um, I've been back and forth in a number of different capacities, both as a full-time colleague. I was an entrepreneur for a few years with an arm's length relationship. I came back to Morningstar. That's when we founded the Self-Management Institute. Now I've got this sort of weird research and consulting relationship with Morningstar. Um, but the point here is that like, that's how it navigated to the next step. And then there were many versions of that over the, I don't know, I guess it's been 25 years now. Wow. Yeah. But that's fascinating. You, you join as a seasonal worker to do some juice testing. Mm -hmm. You have this offer of a job at a bank, presumably to take a pretty traditional corporate career and you end up, yeah, diving into work with the morning stuff. So the. The first question I'm thinking that the skeptic might have when they hear, okay, so people get to opt into their missions and you've got this new mission at Morningstar, which you figured out uh, with the founder. Um, but if there's no boss, what's to stop the guy with the mission slacking off or the girl with the yeah. mission, right? How do we yeah. deal with people actually executing on the mission and delivering? Yeah. So I actually think that's a fantastic question. Maybe one of the most important questions that, that, on one hand, I think can be informative, but hopefully makes you feel a little uncomfortable. But to answer the question, I want to step back a little bit. If I were to just walk up to you, Richard, I mean, you've studied organizations, you're fascinated by organizations, you spend a lot of time talking to people in organizations. If I were to come up to you and say, hey, there's this company in California that has no bosses, no budgetary authority, like anybody can spend resources, anybody can hire people if they need, and people get to craft their own roles and do whatever they feel like they want to do based on a mission. And I asked you to tell me, where do you think that company is? You'd, be, you'd probably say, like, that's in Silicon Valley or you know, it's a tech company and they, they yeah. sit on beanbag chairs and work on computers all day, right? And I think that's what a lot of people instinctively think. And I think we think that because it's easier for us to situate an organization like this 
in a certain type of work or with a certain type of person or with people that do a particular type of, uh, of activity or with a certain education level or a certain intellectual level. So like if we can kind of box it in there, then it gives us permission to not question our assumptions about human beings, right? But then I tell you, it's this actually tomato factory, blue collar workers. Most of them don't have a college education. Um, they do routine things like take samples of juice from, from, from machines or, or work, you know, turn wrenches. And, and that feels a little more uncomfortable because now we're talking about a broader population. We have to ask ourselves, is there something that I have always believed about human beings when it comes to work that is not perfectly accurate? And I think the question you're asking is one of those assumptions that we should, should question. Like, think about where that question comes from. It's like, if you just let people go wild, they're going to go crazy and they're going to take advantage of me or they're going to steal from me or they're just going to like chill and do no work and take the paycheck and then we're all and that, like that assumption is pervasive so but then let's take a step back and imagine you walk into this organization and you're hired and you're like this sounds pretty awesome sounds like there's a lot of boxes that this place checks for me in terms of how i would prefer to work and then you're dropped in and you're kind of told go forth and do something meaningful and what do you do like what are the things that immediately come to your mind. I think it's important to, to, to ask yourself, what matters in an organization where you have no hierarchical authority? And let's start with like, imagine you wanna do something that involves a large number of people. You don't have the ability to tell them to go do whatever it is you want them to do. So how do you influence them to do that? In a place like Morningstar, you've gotta get them to willingly join up. Well, how do you do that? The only credibility you have is the credibility comes from you actually being a performer, a contributor, a person who do, does something meaningful. We hired, I remember uh, later on in my tenure at Morningstar, we hired, um, you know, I got involved in hiring lots of people. And uh, we hired this person who had been a very successful person in, a, in another manufacturing firm. They, they'd done lots of really important things, uh, had great insights, had a great background, uh, had a great personality. We just thought they were going to be fantastic. I came on board and, you know, came aboard, joined up. We went through all the like beginning stuff, mission, et cetera. And, and that's sort of out of sight, out of mind. And I saw him, uh, he contacted me and said, Paul, can we meet about two months into his tenure, three months into his tenure? Um, I said, sure. So we went to lunch and he said, Paul, I, I don't know what to do. Um, I've been here three months and I've got this thing that I'm trying to do and, and it's important. I know it's important. We've talked about it. Many of us know it's important. Um, I said, well, what's the issue? He said, I, I've called three meetings. And I've invited the people that need to be here and I've told them what we're doing. And every one of the meetings, nobody showed up. And he's like, I don't know what to do. How can we make them show up? What would you do in an organization where you call a meeting to do something really important that is important for the organization, but people are like, I don't think that you're the person or I don't think that you have anything to add or you haven't convinced me that this is a worthwhile expense of my time. My point here is that when people get to opt in, suddenly you realize that my reputation here matters. My ability to consistently deliver value for people is the only thing I've got going for me. If that disappears, then people stop showing up when I need them to show up. My ability to achieve my mission in this structurally interdependent environment disappears entirely. I think one of the biggest things that keeps people engaged, doing the right thing, working hard, not you know exploiting or taking advantage of the organization is the fact that there's this the influence you have is much more fluid than it is in a traditional organization. Traditional organization, your influence is granted to you by a, by a hierarchical level. Somebody grants you that influence and you get to keep it as long as you don't mess it up too, too terribly. 
You get to keep it and use it on anybody who's below you. But if you're in an organization where that doesn't exist, the only influence you have left is the influence that Richard, you grant to me. And if you're willingly granting it, you can take it away anytime you want. I think weirdly, the social, the social, the dynamic social hierarchy of the organization is ironically the thing that keeps people locked in in check, um, consistently working hard. Yeah, that's fascinating, and that's and that's true at every level, isn't it? You're you're granted the job title and basically and the and the job spec, and as long as you do just enough, you're pretty much going to keep your job, aren't you? That's exactly right. Yeah. Um. But when, yeah, when, when you've got to be, I suppose, a person of stature and influence in order to have people work with you, um, yeah, you're right. It's fluid. It's every day. It's, it is every day. Yeah. And, and the, the fact that today I have some influence with you, Richard, doesn't mean that tomorrow I'm going to have that influence. It's, it's mm. constantly on a, on a moment-to-moment, day-to-day basis. I have to attend to my commitments to you, to my obligations to you, to my obligations to the organization in a, in a context in which all of that is very, very visible. My performance is imminently visible within the organization. Imagine you're going to select a doctor to perform surgery on your knee uh, and you've never had surgery on your knee. I, I like you're going to go, you're going to ask people around you who's the best mm-hmm. doctor. I know you've had knee surgery. You're going to go to Google and look at reviews and you're going to do all this research. I mean, like that reputational capital is huge in an organization like Morningstar because that's all you've got going for you. It doesn't take too many one-star reviews or too many people saying I had the worst experience ever with that doctor before your ability to have any patience to do anything meaningful for anybody dries up completely. I think that's true in Morningstar. Right. And that's going to happen in, in more formal structures, but it's going to take a lot longer, right? It's exactly right. Exactly right. So this just is more fluid. It accelerates the process. Yeah. 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 So it's, uh, so the opposite, maybe, and this is what we see, right? We see these big performance disparities between com- yeah, companies that employ these types of approaches and those that don't. We see uh, these huge gains exactly in productivity. Right. Um, and yep. that may be one of the key drivers, right? That like every day you're on the court and, and it's, you, you've got to be contributing and making a difference in order to keep your influence and um, maintain your position in the company. Absolutely. Uh, I think it's, I think it, a lot of people think about Morningstar and there are lots of psychological benefits associated with being at a place like Morningstar. It's a very, it's very invigorating. There's a lot of freedom. You have autonomy and there are lots of reasons why that's great. Uh, but I think, I don't think it's like this, the feeling on a day-to-day basis is it's like all rosy. Everyone's patting each other on the back and giving each other hugs. In fact, I think it's very much like being an entrepreneur. I've been an entrepreneur. I know what it mm-hmm. feels like every day you wake up and you realize if I don't cut it today, like I may not be able to do this tomorrow. I've got to make sure every single day I'm at 100%. I think being a morning star is very much like that. You, mm. You've got to be consistently attending to um, your, your capital within the organization, to your reputation within the organization, to your commitments to other people. Uh, I think it's analogous to that kind of day-to-day, moment-to-moment pressure. They say being an entrepreneur, you don't own your business, your business owns you. And I think part of what they're saying is that like you don't get to take a break from it and that's very much what it's like at Morningstar. Right, but that does not have a negative impact on well-being, right? I don't think so. With the evidence seems to suggest it does not. Um we spent a lot of time over the years uh trying to to understand how our organizational environment contributed to lots of differences 
to differences in how people experience their work and their happiness level, their engagement level, their income level relative to what they would be making elsewhere. So we look at a number of indicators and it's some of these things it's really hard to pinpoint because it's not like there's a huge, massive publicly available data set, but most of the indicators we have access to suggest that um, uh, engagement is system, seems to be systematically higher, income seems to be systematically higher, overall happiness with one's life seems to be systematically higher, um, uh, tenure, long, long, longevity within the organization, turnover rate is much lower, people spend, tend to spend much longer period of time. So at least the indirect indicators seem to suggest that this is an environment that is meaningfully more suitable for human beings. But it's not just this environment where it's like a utopia. I mean, I think it's at any any sort of uh, any environment in which they're interdependent where like people need something from you. There's always going to be this like feeling of if I fail to deliver, it would be problematic. I don't, I don't think that's ever going to exist in any commercial activity. Mm. Yeah, I know that. That makes sense. And when you, you mentioned the income level, it brings to mind, I interviewed a guy called Julian Wilson, who, who runs an engineering firm here in the UK, and he wrote a book called 500%, and he implemented very similar principles to that, which you've got at Morningstar. <laughs> One of the things he noticed over time is he implemented, because he changed, right? He went from a more traditional bureaucratic structure to one more open. He said the car park changed and there were more German cars in the car park. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, that's a fantastic indicator, right? It's a fantastic indicator that people are doing a people are ostensibly creating more value and capturing more of that value for themselves and i actually think it's a beautiful thing there's all this conversation uh about like a wage disparity and like what the average ceo in the united states at least makes relative to the average frontline worker in the united states um and we can think about lots of like ways to think about fixing that but i think what morningstar has done is not just like made this commitment to paying people more, but actually made a commitment to an organizational context in which people can create more value and as a consequence, demand more, no matter where they are, whether it's with us or somewhere else. We, Morningstar sort of like deliberately put themselves in a position where if they don't pay more, people have the opportunity to go do something else that's much more, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it, in a way, it's a developmental environment. And I think what you're, mm. what, what the, the author of the book you're describing is, is sort of pointing to is, it's not merely we're writing bigger checks to people. It's we've put people in an organizational context where they have the ability to do more than they otherwise would be able to. And as a consequence, they must be compensated with more money. Otherwise, they're going to disappear. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and the, and the deben, 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 developmental environment that you're describing also echoes another. There's a software company in Argentina called Ten Pines, again, flat, no bosses, you know, no structures. And I asked the, one of the leaders of that company, okay, what do you do for leadership development? He said, we don't have leadership development. I said, well, well, how does it work? Then he said, we don't even have a concept of leaders. We have an, a concept of citizens. And the way that people develop here is just through participating in the processes because you know, they're constantly coming up with proposals. They're having their proposals rejected. They're having to yep. lobby for their ideas. Yep. They're being developed as leaders automatically. Yep. through the culture of the company. And so we don't exactly. have a need for those types of programs. Exactly. I, that, I think conceptually, that's very much aligned with my experience at Morningstar. Um, and again, started as an 18-year-old kid. I knew nothing about anything. Jess was intrigued, research-minded. But if you engage and you participate in how things are done there, it doesn't matter who you are or where you are. You're going to develop some skills and the ability to... How do I think about financial decisions in an organizational context? Like an 18 or 19 year old kid thinking about 
what is the capital investment necessary to do this thing I want to do? And what is going to be the return? Like that's a very foreign concept for a frontline mm-hmm. factory worker traditionally to be engaging with. But you're starting to think about things that way because you need to validate what you want to do with the people around you who are going to be impacted by it. Right. And so yeah. and then and the, yeah. the process yeah. of it influencing others to get them on board with something you want to do. Like these are the things that leaders do. And and everyone who wants to engage in Morningstar has the opportunity to practice that and to develop those skills, to hone those those abilities. I I think it's very much aligned. It's one of, from my perspective, my research interests, I think, are most most, uh, focused on the idea of organizations that help people maximize their realized human potential. I ask people when I go around and talk to them, I ask them, like, imagine yourself operating at your highest possible level. You've probably never achieved it, but imagine what that would look like for you, whether it's like your highest level of creativity or productivity or innovation or most number of pages written or the most brilliant, impactful thing, whatever it is, like, what does that look like on a scale? And that's your 10 on a scale of one to 10. And then I ask them on that same scale where that 10 is you at your optimal and one is you are literally sitting here doing nothing of any impact. Where are you today? The average number that people give me somewhere in the five, five and a half range. Think about that. Every day, people are leaving about 45 to 50% of their human potential untapped. I think that's organization's fault. I think that's the that's a problem of organization. It's not a problem of people. Nobody joins up and it's like, can I get away with only giving 50%? Most people really actually internally want to live up to their maximum potential. We don't facilitate that. And I think, so most of my research actually looks at how do organizations facilitate people getting closer to what that maximum potential is? Because once the day is done, that 45 to 50% is gone. It can't be recaptured. That day of your life has disappeared and we can never capture that potential. So this is the thing that fascinates me more than almost anything about Morningstar. Not just the motivation or not just that like radical organization. It's like, it's taking people and helping them get closer to their maximum potential. Brilliant. And, and have you got that data for Morningstar then? Do you know what that figure is on, you know, on an average for Morningstar? You know, that's a great question. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I've asked people at Morningstar um, in the past and like anecdotal, but I've never like got a group of people together and say, hey, tell me what it's, I, I should do that. I should do that and see what it looks like relative to what like the average person, the population. I have lots of data from across the population, but I should do that. I'll do that and I'll report yeah. back to you. Yeah, well, I, it just reminds me of another another company we've had on the show, and they're, they're a marketing firm in in the UK again, and and they uh, they did this survey on engagement. Now, I don't know to what extent engagement is a proxy for sort of maximizing one's potential, but they same thing, you know, very limited structure, very flat, and uh, and they found that they had this external firm come survey the engagement levels, and the engagement levels were so high, they had to create a new category. <laughs> describe the employees in this company called super engaged and then the yeah the manager director of this firm ended up writing a book about it called super engaged um but uh yeah it's uh it, it if that's if that's an indicator if engagement correlates with maximizing potential then yeah it would there's certainly plenty of indicators that these com- companies that operate on on these principles uh, achieve much higher levels of um maximizing potential absolutely yeah uh yeah, it's um, it's it's wonderful to hear. But give me, bring it back, you know, to be the voice of the skeptic again, because I'm sure there are a few listeners out there. <laughs> so okay, hope so. so. So we know that these people are on the court every day. We know that their their sort of social capital is everything, you know, in the firm, and they're they're highly motivated to 
you know, to be to be contributing every day. But but what about for those those individuals who just for whatever reason are not contributing? How do how do you fire them? Yeah. So this is actually something that's really intriguing. We've we've thought a lot about. So I'll tell you kind of the organizational party line. Um, technically, you can't fire them. Most you can do is you can ask them to leave, which is sort of weird sounding, right? Like I'm asking you to leave and you say no. And we're like, okay, I, what do we do then? Um, and that happens, believe it or not. Uh, Morningstar has this, this idea. So that, that um, you can, you can call it a, a conflict resolution process, but we call it a gaining agreement process. Um, a, a meaningful part of most organizations do is they help people resolve disagreements. They, they, when one person has perspective A and another person has perspective B, they're the adjudicator and they figure out which of the two perspectives or is there a third perspective that we're actually going to take. And then they make the decision. They're the arbiter of like disagreements at some level. That's at least a part of their job. Uh, and, and in the absence of that person, so how do we do that? So in Morningstar, the goal is merely is, is people acting of their own volition. So if we have a difference of perspectives about how we should do things, what we should do, we have to try to find agreement. And that's the, the responsibility of the two parties. So Richard, if you and I have a disagreement about which particular machine we should acquire, and both of us, you know, both of us sort of feel like our perspective is sound and justified, step one in the gaining agreement process is for us one-on-one -on -one to get together and try to work through it. Now, we may be able to do that, and we may not. If we don't, then we get a third party that anyone within the organization we feel like might have some additional perspective to add bring them in and they try to help us reach an agreement. The goal is for the two of us to reach an agreement. If that doesn't work, we get six to 10 colleagues that both of us agree on. They're not a panel. They're not a jury. They're, their job is to try to help us reach an agreement. And if that fails to work, then the last step is we get the, the founder and the owner who we see as the protector of the organizational environment in to ultimately be the kind of decider. And we right. view that as as a problem, because if it gets to there, it means the organization hasn't done its job. The system hasn't worked the way we want. But it does happen occasionally. And historically, maybe eight to 12 times a year, there's some decision that Chris Rufer has to get called into. It is almost always a decision about whether or not a person needs to remain in the organization. OK, so right. So, so Richard, if you think I ask it, away, yes, it's, it's a fantastic well, the, 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 question. The yeah. culture does have. You know, find it difficult to do. It is. It's it's one of those pain points. Now, to be clear, um, usually I think about how hard it is to walk up to a person and invite them to leave. That's actually a really hard thing for any human being to do. Uh, so it really doesn't probably doesn't happen as often as maybe it could or should. Um, and so as a consequence, I think the way Morningstar has tried to to manage what I think is probably a weakness is to be very very purposeful and cautious about the approach to selection and hiring. And a lot of time. A lot of time we we anyone who's going to be impacted by that person coming on board is part of the selection process so if you're wanting to come on board at morningstar you might interview with 20 or 30 people it might take three months and for a lot of people they're like i can't this is just too much this is overwhelming this is way too much to ask and there's a reasonable point there it's, it's reasonable to say it shouldn't take three months and 30 hours for you to decide whether you want me to come on board or not um, but I think that's where Morningstar has kind of come down on it. Like, let's be really protective and make sure that the people come in. We're really, really, really confident it's going to work out. Now, it doesn't always work out. And there are issues where a person has to be asked to leave. Uh, eventually, I, I think it usually settles out where it probably should settle out. 
it just takes a really long time. And, and I think the organization, not because of an organizational principle, but because of the reluctance to say, hey, I think you need to leave and this willingness or desire to try to figure it out or try to make it work, it ends up taking much longer than it should. So maybe somebody who it becomes clear six months in that I don't think this person's going to work. It might be two years before they 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 end up leaving because, you know, before Richard ever has that conversation, with Paul, Richard sits down with Paul and says, hey, can we figure out what to do? Like, maybe there's some training you can get or you're not showing up when you say you're going to show up and work on that. And, and people just tend to be more long suffering. So I think that's probably one of the weak points of the organization. Right. And what are the things are you are you trying new strategies in that area? Uh, I'm not engaged in anything on that front right now. I, one of my colleagues, a friend of mine, Doug Kirkpatrick, has spent a lot of time thinking about this. Um, there were a few years where we invested very, very heavily in this. And we thought about a lot of things, including we, we went so far as to think about revamping our entire compensation process um, in, in ways that at the time I thought were really radical. In retrospect, it was probably a really foolish idea. Uh, but people just like universally hated the idea. So I mean, we've dabbled with lots of things. We've tried experiments. We've tried to figure out how to increase that tendency to have that initial difficult conversation more quickly, both in service of development, but also in service of if a person's not working out, let's get that decision made relatively early and figure out how to get it to a head to where to, you know, um, but I'm not sure that we've, we've, figure that out. I think that's probably one of the most difficult parts. People just don't like those, those, um, I mean, I don't, people at Morningstar on, on a whole are not conflict avoidant. In fact, I think the organization ironically fosters productive conflict, but it, there's this like breaking point. And most people are very, very reluctant to push all the way through to, but if I push this through, then Richard may not have a job. And that feels weird to almost everyone. Nobody really likes to be that person. Right. Yeah. No, that, that makes sense. And I guess we should also say there are plenty of hierarchical companies that it might take them two, two years to find oh, someone who's not. Yeah, so, that's so. true. That's true. Uh, I mean, there are others who, who, who maybe are more ruthless, but um, yeah. At a, at, a philosophical, at a philosophical level, though, I mean, if you think about the most efficient human organization theoretically possible, it would be an organization where any given moment, any given day, Every bit of energy that's being exerted is maximum and there's no waste, right? right? And so any day where there's some human waste is a day where the organization hasn't done its job perfectly. So at a, at a basic philosophical level, um, without incorporating the idea that humans exist and humans matter and how they feel and how they think matters, like the organization would be this fluid thing where people are disappearing Immediately, practically speaking, I'm not sure any organization aspires to that. And I actually don't even think Morningstar aspires to that. I think at its heart, most people within Morningstar, and I think at a philosophical level, would prefer Morningstar to be a place where once you've joined up, we're kind of married. And marriage should be difficult to break up, and it should hurt. Yeah. And, and so we need to try to make it work. We need to try to figure out how to make it work. And so I think given a choice, I would prefer to err on the side of long suffering, trying to figure out a path forward, trying to figure out a place for this person to, to work. And so at some level, I think it works better, but it is also an area of deficiency from a pure efficiency standpoint. Yeah. yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, no, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um and again, it may be there are benefits for that yeah. process 
taking a long yep. time, right? I suspect that there are. Yeah, I think that I think most people in Morningstar have a high degree of confidence that no matter what, I know I'm going to be treated fairly and equitably if things ever go sour, and that matters to people. So you don't even have to be a part of that conversation, but observing this happening gives most people a confidence that this is an organization uh, where justice will prevail and and I'll be treated equitably no matter what. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Now we've got a bit of time left here. I, I'm I'm interested then in in the institute. Yeah. Um, the, the, you now lead and I guess your, your experience of, t- of taking these ideas outside of Morningstar, um, and, and to the extent you've had, uh, experiences of other companies trying any of these principles and where they've succeeded, where they failed. Yeah. If you tell, tell me about that. Yeah. Great, great question. So, uh, to be completely transparent, I think my interests have, uh, have shifted over time. Um, to be completely frank, I'm not a great consultant. I'm very driven by the things that I find intellectually stimulating. And I love to get involved in problems that I think are interesting problems. And through the process of solving, we can learn something. But that's not where consulting really, you know, that's not that's not the business of consulting. So, and I'm not saying that uh, the self-management institute is by any means a consulting arm, but a big part of what you're describing is something that has always been at the heart of what we wanted to do. But my particular role in that has been very spotty and sporadic, driven entirely by how interesting the opportunity to have a conversation folks is. My long way of saying that I'm not sure that I'm the most objective indicator of, yes, we've dropped it in here and it worked great, or, you know, this is the process for doing that. In fact, um, one of the things in my existence is that I haven't figured that out. Uh, one, one of the things that was always at the center of what we wanted to do with the Institute was um, if, in fact, self-management is core to Morningstar's competitive advantage, and we believe it is, we've always believed it is, if it's at the heart of our competitive advantage, how can we go out and find other organizations to bring into the fold, either as an acquisition and then apply self-management to it, or as you know, just a partner organization where we go in and you've got like-minded people in the organization and say, we're going to apply this. Um, it turns out that the the story you told of the the person who you had on your uh, on your podcast yeah. who had changed an organization those stories are very rare. It, yeah. we we struggle with the framework or model for how to change a company. Um, my long way of saying that I don't know that I have the secret or how to do it. Uh, and it's something that I've spent a lot of time on. It's something that I, I've got a colleague who continues to spend a lot of time on. Um, but that's probably, from my perspective, that's the biggest, like you get to the end of the movie and you want the end of the movie to be this big, like, you know, the music comes on and everyone smiles and the world is changing. And actually, I think the end of this movie is a little bit disappointing because I'm increasingly convinced that the only reason this has worked so well for Morningstar is A, it started this way. And it wasn't encumbered by all the cultural norms and expectations. And culture is so hard to change. You know this. Walk mm-hmm. into an organization with any set of any strong culture, or even a moderately strong culture, and say, we're going to make this wide sweeping change. And immediately, even if the change is something that people intuitively think is good, people immediately bow up and they bristle and they push back at it. For some reason, cultures are crazy difficult to change. So part of it is that. And part of it is that. Um, Part of the success story of Morningstar, I think, is that there's always been a person 
in an ownership role who is a fierce advocate and protector of the organizational system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if anything, those are the two critical weaknesses. Right. Yeah. It started this way and it and it's got a, a strong sort of mo- almost yep. yeah, moral protector, right? Yeah. Moral protector is a fantastic way of putting it. I think that's exactly what it is. Uh, it's hard for me to imagine that if we were to replace that person with, you know, a hired hand, even a hired hand that understand intellectually why this is important, but didn't feel it as a deep level philosophical set of beliefs, mm. it's hard for me to imagine that it would persist. I think that's such a yeah. critical part. The role of leaders in self-managed organizations is ironically about making sure that self-managed organizations remain true to being a self-managed organization. Right. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if you're familiar with the book Moose Heads on the Table, Mm-mm. but it's a story of sort of taking self-management into companies a lot in Northern Europe. And um, the, the, the case, oh, you know, there's maybe three or four examples in that book of exactly as of, of going into a company, getting the self-management going, putting in a hard hand and, the, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it reverting. Um, it's and like it's a fragile state it is. and it requires a, 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 a committed leader to maintain. Yeah. It's like a, almost like a, a garden, right? A really well manicured garden. And, and unless you've got that committed gardener, it, it, it will just return to nature, which is something that for some reason in organization tends, tends back towards sort of bureaucratic. Management. This is this is maybe the thing that plagues me the most because the starting point for me has always been has always been that the modern organization by and large is inconsistent with fundamentals of human, human behavior. That's always been my perspective. Uh, and maybe it's because I grew up in this company where I'm sort of shaped and you know I grew up differently. Um, but I think the thing that plagues me the most, and if there is a place where your skeptics hat is completely justified. It's this, it's the fact that, as you said, I've seen it over and over and again. One of the reasons why I'm so reluctant to like, get involved in a consulting engagement is because if it's this purely instrumental, like we're going to do it because it's better for fill in the blank, whatever, as opposed to we're going to do it because it is the right and best way to do things. And then we'll let the outcomes fall where they may. Every time I've ever been involved in a project like that, it, it, it does exactly what you described. It seems like it reverts to this terribly disappointed mean. And um, that is the thing that plagues me most, most about this whole endeavor. And if there's any place where I'm inclined to, to, to share your skeptics hat, it's this. It's, is self-management really fundamentally aligned with fundamentals of human beings in a social context? Or is it this anomaly that works really, really well, but as you said, it's this very fragile thing. And if, and if there is not this fierce protector that's building a fence around it, then any slight wind blown in any direction is going to blow it over and cause it all to sort of like revert back. Yeah, I, I do wonder if that's the nature of self-management. And it reminds me a little bit, I don't know if you're familiar with the work on psychological safety. Absolutely. Um, and what's uh, the Harvard economic, she's been on the show. Amy, I'm just, Amy Edmondson? Amy Edmondson, right. And she was on and the dissertation about, committee. Right. Okay, right. Well, she talks about this asymmetry in the context of psychological safety where um, it's kind of, Everybody has to be trustful of the environment in order for uh, safety to persist. Um, so it requires everyone to be to behave in a certain way in order to pers- persist the safety. But just w- but in the other one individual to start behaving in a way that undermines the trust. So you've got this asymmetry where it's much easier to destroy the trust than it is to 
create and maintain it. And I wonder if it's something similar in the case of self-management. There's this asymmetry where it's, it requires a, a, a lot of things to be true in order for the state to persist. And it only requires one thing to be true in order for it to, uh, to, to dissolve. If it dissolves, All of us if you like. kind of agree and do this this way, then it's going to be magical. But if any one of us dissents, the entire thing falls apart. I think that's 100% true of psychological safety. And my experience has been in this world of self-management that's very similar. That if everyone sort of clicked in and there, there's kind of some sort of insurance policy to make sure that nobody deviates, nobody deviates meaningfully, then it works beautifully. But if you have one of these features or factors that sort of falls apart, then the entire thing devolves. I think that's very much the, the way it is. And I, I wish there was a way to solve that problem, to, to make it more resilient, to make it more resilient. Yeah, like, yeah, resilient to sort of charismatic yes. leaders or, or, or um, you know, who may play, start playing games in different ways or, yeah, exactly. How do we make a resilient culture? That's a great question. That's a great question for the Institute. There, yeah, it is exactly an area for yeah. an area for uh, ex extensive research potentially. Right. Well, and and what are yeah? So just as, so, what are your sort of you know what are you focused on right now? What what what's your priorities in terms of your your research and focus uh, in the in the future for you? So most of my personal research is looking at how do we get, you know what are the the features of organizations that better yield development for individuals within those organizations. So I'm very focused on the developmental side of things, the individual developmental side of things. I also have some personal research um, uh, with a colleague from, uh, from uh, University in Europe, uh, looking at, in, in a way that actually is ironically a little uncomfortable for me, uh, we conducted a field experiment uh, in a, um, a government agency actually here in the United States a government agency where um, some units in the government agency, we applied self experimentally applied self-management to and others, we, we didn't. We kind of watched what happened in these, these various units over the course of about a year. Um, and what we were focused on really there is the experience that people had in this environment relative to, to their colleagues in the more tra the, the traditional uh, units. Um, and and a, maybe somewhat disappointing uh, finding, we find that actually on average, there is no difference in experience. And by experience, I'm talking about things like engagement level, motivation, satisfaction with one's work, overall well-being, likelihood of turning over, departing. And on the average, there is no difference. But what we found is actually, it seems like there are some conditional differences. For some people, being dropped into self-managed context experimentally actually dramatically increases their all of the experience outcomes. Other people, it not only does it not increase, it actually detracts from them. They, they get worse. Their job mm -hmm. satisfaction diminishes, their engagement drops, their likelihood of turnover increases dramatically. So all the things that we care about from an overarching like positive experience of work or well-being standpoint seems to diminish. Um, and so this is something that is kind of plaguing me because as I've already said, I, I tend to come at this from the perspective that this is a universal thing. This is how human beings are meant to interact with each other. But it seems like there are some features, um, some characteristics at least of human beings that that if that's you, maybe this isn't the best environment for you. So one of the things that, that we're trying to figure out is, is it fair for us to have these generalized assumptions like are human beings monolithic and how they experience work? Or, or is it the case that maybe there should be 40 or 50 different organizational types and people can kind of filter into the organizational type that's best aligned 
most aligned for them. The, the like preacher of the self-management gospel in me hopes that it's not the latter. The, the more pragmatic, slightly cynical person who's been around thinks that maybe, maybe it is the case that for whatever reason, either just differences in human beings or because of conditioning or past experiences they had, maybe this is not for everyone. I don't know the answer to that. That's a big question for me. I think it's one that, that I would love to have a more uh, more confident answer to. But, uh, but interestingly, in the last couple of years, I've developed more questions than answers. So, Yeah, well, that's fascinating. And I, and I feel like I'm guilty of perhaps falling into a, a trap myself where I'm like, well, surely this is just better for the world in general. And doesn't everybody want yeah. to be free? And who the hell would yeah. ever want a boss anyway? Right? It, and maybe, yeah. as you say, maybe that is just not true for some people. The big question that is out there for me, and maybe the place where we as practitioners, we as researchers, or some combination thereof, maybe the thing that that would be used, be nice to have some answers to is we don't ever get people at the beginning of their life, like everyone comes into our organization at any point with some experiences that have that have you know socialized them to a certain type of environment that have given them a set of social tendencies or skills or abilities that are that are, you know, inherent to who they are. And, and maybe one of the reasons that some people struggle in this environment is that they've been equipped with a different set of uh, social skills that, that, that serve with them better in a different organizational environment. So uh, to the degree that this is more ubiquitous and universal, uh, I think we'd have to couple, um, you know, applying uh, self-management in organizations with some sort of way of helping people, you know, very rapidly unlearn, you know, the very social socialization experiences they've had that that have made them ill-equipped for this organizational environment. I, I think it's probably the biggest the biggest um, uh, question mark in my mind with respect to is this universal or is this just one of many possible organizational types that we can envision? Well, that sounds like a, a fantastic uh, project to, to work on. Uh... Uh, it, well, it, it brings to mind actually, you know, Pim and Juice, the corporate rebels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the when I interviewed uh, uh, Pim on the show, he said that one of the his motivations to get into this is he was brought up uh, in a home environment, not a school environment, where his parents were very uh, laissez-faire. They he didn't experience them as all authority figures, and had all this 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 freedom in his childhood, and and then at college, and then when he came into the workplace, he's like, "What the hell is this?" Like. Yeah. Why is everyone telling me what to do all of a sudden? Yeah. And that was his motivation for researching other companies where, where, where that were not true. So he obviously his, his socialization to some degree led to him to have an aversion to hierarchy. Um, so it's, you know, by extension, then, is it also, could it also be true that socialization gives one an affinity with, yeah. uh, with hierarchies? Ultimately, very few organizations are going to get involved in trying to help parents, for example, um, to parent in a way that makes their their kids eventually suitable for a self-managed organization. So I don't I don't know how that plays out in the long term. Right, right, right. Um, but great, these are great questions. Um, yeah, fantastic that you've got this opportunity to research them. Um, and maybe we can get you back on the show sometime when you've uh, got a bit further down the track with these questions. Yeah, when I when I have some answers, I'll come back and I'll and I'll share them with you. I promise. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you very much uh, for your time. Uh, I've loved this conversation. I hope uh, people out there listening also uh, also enjoyed it. So if people want to discover more, uh, where, where would you send them? Uh, learn more about what you're doing and, and the, yeah. uh, the Morningstar story. 
So they can check out the Morningstar website at morningstarco.com. They can check out my website at paulgreenjr.com, P-A-U-L-G-R-E-E-N-J-R.com. Um, the Morningstar website has some links to some of the Self-Management Institute materials and content. We also have a LinkedIn group, Self-Management Institute, that you can request to join up with. And, and while that's not a venue where you get lots of like active content, there's a place where you can be connected to some like-minded individuals and begin to connect with a, with a network on that front. So. Fantastic. And we'll put those, uh, those links in the description. Uh, awesome. All right. Thanks again, Paul. Thank you, Richard, for having me. This was a blast. It's been a it, was pleasure. A, it was an honor to be able to talk to you and, I, and to your listeners as well. So okay. thanks, thanks for the invitation. Thanks again. Thank you. All righty. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.